Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. So what's the first brand that you remember in your life having an impact on you? Um, the first brand that I can remember, I grew up in England. So my father's British and my mom's American. I spent the first 12 years of my life in England. And so it's, it's going to be a British brand. Um, I probably something like Waitrose, um, you know, sort of in my childhood, Clark's Which is shoes a retailer, before yeah. my name was Clark, uh, Clark's shoes. I can remember that was, that felt kind of special and important. Um, and I think I can even remember my school requiring Clark's shoes. So I mean, some of those early brands in my life. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow for seven years. I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Wendy Clark. She's the CEO of DDB Worldwide, which is one of the largest marketing communication networks in the world. She has offices in 100 countries, and her firm, DDB, is owned by Omnicom, which is one of the world's largest holding companies. Wendy has worked for AT&T, GSDNM. She works for DDB now, of course, Coca-Cola. She talks about her favorite ad campaign. She talks about her children. She has beautiful thoughts about mentors in her life. She talks about the importance of passion in her work, and she talks a lot about how she leads a high-performing organization. Here is my conversation with Wendy Clark. Wendy, it is so good to see you. And do you know why you're here? Well, I do know why I'm here because we were put together on an email by Mandy Rassi, our, our lovely client at uh, Kroger. And then you and I and your team were connected and here we are. Yeah. Well, that was the first reason. The second reason is I've oh. been a fan of yours for a long time. Oh, well, that's nice. Thank and you. you came and to my mutual. You came to my class in Cannes this year, my CMO Accelerator class. You made the most remarkable talk, and we're going to unpack some of that later mm -hmm. in, the, in the podcast. But, but um, I'm so looking forward to this. You really, really love advertising and storytelling, so we're going to start there. Okay. So my first question for you is, when in your life did you fall in love with advertising? Go way back. Gosh, way back. Um, well, I guess in college, I was a creative writing major. Um, and so at Florida uh, State, right? At Florida State University. Um, Jerome Stern uh, yeah. was one of the professors that had the most impact on me. He, he's, a, he's written a book called Making Shapely Fiction. 
And I can re- I'll never forget the title of that book, Making Shapely Fiction. I just think it's a, a great, you know, sort of in- construct and instruction of what we're trying to do. So, yeah, I think just from an early age, I, I thought I wanted to be a writer. I always say that with some hesitation, especially when the creator's around. They're like, oh, great. Here she goes. Um, so, but I mean, I think I quickly figured out that, I, well, I could construct a narrative and could communicate well. Um, I wasn't at the level that was required for advertising. So I actually, you know, sort of came up more of the account side and strategy side. So I was in college, really. Yeah. 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 So do your three kids like advertising as much as you do? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, my little man, my, my youngest, who's 12, has a fantastic eye. Like, I'm super impressed. He will watch an ad and say, I see that they were trying to do this, this, or this. With poor it. execution. That, yeah, no, but I mean, literally. And then, of course, I think in their minds, as far as they're concerned, every ad that has anything to do with any of our clients, I did. You know, they don't really understand. So they're like, Mom, is that yours? And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and again, you know, when I always say when I was at Coke, I think they thought I made the Coke. You know, doesn't, those sort of complications are sort of lost on children. But he has a fantastic eye of understanding what a brand is trying to say, the meaning and the reason behind it. Um, I, I think my girls are probably more tolerant. My, my oldest is now applying to college, and uh, she very much is focused on international business and I think sustainability. I think she's very much Gen Z and motivated to make the world better. So I think advertising where it can support an agenda sure. and have a more of a sustainable approach, very much like your swell bottle right, uh, right here. Um, you know, they are very, very supportive of that as you know, illustrative of their generation. I can play a big role. I have a, my oldest daughter, my only daughter is a critical care ICU nurse. And she'll tell you the Johnson and Johnson campaign is one factor for her being interested in that career. That's amazing. Yeah. And Johnson and Johnson, again, a, a client of ours have over invested, particularly around nurses and the medical community and really taken the time to understand, you know, what that job is like, what is required in that. And I think propagate the profession and try to recruit and help. And nurses love that. They yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. They make it all run. They do. Yes, they do. The, and anyone who's had babies knows who really delivers yeah. the babies is the nurses. So who was your first mentor in the ad business? You started, I know, yes. with GSDNM. Yes. Well, so my, my very first mentor, my first job out of college, I was a receptionist in an ad agency. Uh, not, not intending to be, but that was the job that I could get at the time, sort of a, a small recession in the early 90s. Uh, the woman, that's a, it was a woman-owned agency in Atlanta, Georgia, where I still live today. And uh, she's still in business. And so the story I love to tell a lot is, you know, as you do when you change jobs, you do the put everyone in blind copy and here's my new contact info, right. blah, blah, blah. So I'll do that. And every time I've done those. So I remember when I went from uh, AT&T to Coke, I got this response back. And she's like, oh, honey, you used to answer my phones honey. and now you're running marketing at Coke. <laughs> you know, you're still honey to her. She's uh, so her name's Priscilla Jessup. We still have we'll have a lunch. Uh, Make sure she listens to this every other month. Well, I talk about her a lot. She's kind of getting used. She's like, you're making me famous again because <laughs> I do talk about her a lot. But she's just, you know, I think what I reflect on with her is, look, we were a tiny little agency in Sandy Springs, Georgia. I mean, it was, you know six, 10 people maybe at some, and we were all doing all jobs, whatever was required. And it was, it was just sort of a work ethic that got instilled early on. It doesn't have to be a great big grand team or, you know, lots of, you know, um, pomp and circumstance. We were in a, in a small office and, and delighting our clients. 
And I think that's what I, that sort of stuck with me. And, and, and in a sense, her stick to itness, you know, 30 years later, still leading the agency. So she Good certainly is someone who's been with me for a long time. You, you sort of led into GSDNM was probably my first real agency experience. The Austin um, agency. And yeah. I actually Started just in the 60s. texted Roy this weekend. Uh, Roy One Spence, of the founders, yeah. Yes, over the weekend and said, I actually sent text, preparing a little bit for this, um, I sent text to Roy, to Muchar Kent, and to Ed Whitaker, who are the three people who I, I think my language- Muchar was the CEO of Coke. Yes. And, and Ed Whitaker, Whitaker was AT&T. CEO of AT&T. Yeah. And I sent them all texts and, and Muchar and, and Mr. Whitaker, I always call him Mr. Whitaker, by the way. Uh, only his direct reports called him Ed. And he even signed his text back to me, Ed W. And I'm like, no, you're Mr. Whitaker. I can't. It's too late. Um, but I thought to myself, as I was just sort of thinking about this, the three people who have shaped me indelibly are those three leaders. Um, and both Mutar and Mr. Whitaker are now retired. And I thought, you know, when I'm in my 70s and retired, I, I think I might like to know that someone... Mm-hmm still thinks about me and is grateful for me. And so I just dropped them notes this weekend saying, I want you to know that the, the mark that you have made on me and Roy, who is still very busy doing all kinds of Roy things. Yes, he is. Um, but they really shaped me and I am forever grateful for the three of them. Um, and Roy, I mean, I could, you know, Roy is just such an incredible leader. He really taught me the power of inspiration and belief. I mean, that is what he drilled into that team morning, noon, and night, you know, he signs every email right at dawn. I mean, that, that incredible energy, uh, it, it washed over me and it never left me. And I, I modeled myself in that, in that way for forevermore after GSDNM. It's how I think about leading my teams. It's, it's really important to me. It's the people I hire have to have that sort of same energy and inspiration. So, so he taught me that. Uh, Mr. Whitaker taught me the power of listening more than talking, even though I'm rambling on here. You're supposed um, to be, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> um, he was a man of fairly few words, but when he spoke, the entire room leaned in to listen to what he said. He's just, the, the capacity to listen fully and to fully understand something, I think, as a leader is so important. And again, in, an, in a six-second type of video world, we, you know, and all the stories written about, we have less attention span than the goldfish, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that has stayed with me to just take a minute and take a beat. And I think some of the things my team would say about me, I read things fully. If you send something to me, I will read it end to end. I will absorb it. I really, and he shaped me in that way. I, I try everything I can, even though we're moving very quickly, to fully listen and try to fully understand to the extent I can. So I learned that from Mr. Whitaker. And then Mutar is probably the most diplomatic person uh, and the most globally aware and astute person I have ever met. And he taught me the importance of global understanding, uh, global di- diplomacy. The, and I guess I, th- I think in the U.S. as a, an American, even though I was born in England, um, we can shortcut that sometimes. And so as a leader at, at Coke and now at DDB with offices in 100 countries, it's really important to take the time to be globally aware, to be globally respectful and take the time to understand cultures and be diplomatic. And so those three shaped me an incredible amount. And I, I guess I would add just one more person, sorry, that I never worked for, but that has shaped me is Shelley Lazarus, who as I think about my current job, allowed me to think. I and can Shelley, look- for those listeners who don't right. know her, was, was a pioneer in advertising, one of the first women in a leadership role ever. Correct. She and Charlotte Bears, yeah. I think, were the, the first women. 
But what Shelley taught me, even from afar, was that I could learn from others, but I could do it. I myself could do it. And, you know, Sheryl Sandberg says you can't be what you can't see. And uh, Shelley taught me that I could be it by, by watching her role model. So those are the four people that generally roll around Beautiful my head. stories, Wendy. And I think the, the amazing thought you shared going into those stories was you took a moment to say thank you to those people who shaped you. And we would all want to hear that throughout our career, but especially toward the end of it. And I mean, I just think for everyone, we don't share enough gratitude. And I don't and know why. Because I feel to, it. Yeah, I know. You know, And so I think, and again, that was my, I think probably just speed. I think it's just pace and speed. I don't think people uh, mean not to be appreciative, but you can, I, I think you can feel it more when it happens now yeah. because it happens less. Yeah. A beautiful thing happened a few weeks ago. Uh, there was a mentor of so many Procter & Gamble people. His name was Gibby Carey, and he passed away this week. But several weeks ago, uh, one of my friends and colleagues wrote to a bunch of us and said, could you just write him a letter? about the impact he had in your life. Mm. And all these people wrote letters, stories, pictures, awesome. and sent them and they put it into a big book. And he had time to reflect on that, read it. And, you know, and a few weeks later, he's not with us anymore. Yeah. And his wife so appreciates that. It's such a memory of his impact in the world. So it was just a moment. We also said thanks, mm -hmm. stopped our crazy lives. Yeah. And we just need to do more and more of that. We do. That's one of my takeaways from this great discussion. Okay. We could end it now, but okay. we're not going to. We're done. So here's a tough one. The favorite campaign you've ever worked on personally of all time. Yeah, it is a tough one, uh, but I do know. You've probably been answer. asked that before. Yes. The, the one, one I think I'm most proud of when we were at Coke, we did a campaign called Small World Machines, uh, which sought to... Um, make a connection between Pakistan and India, um, which is not an easy one, obviously. And putting your brand at the center of that could be risky. Um, and it was, uh, it was Leah Burnett in Sydney who came up with the idea uh, proactively and came to us and said, we think that there's a way to use Coke machines in both countries and put technology in them that actually allows those countries to be connected. And there's so many more stories between those countries than is just the the news headlines of conflict. There are separated families who haven't seen each other for years. And, and, and at Coke's fundamental belief, obviously, is you can come together over Coke and share, find commonality, find, find a moment of happiness together. And That's its so purpose, right? Which the, we'll talk about later. So the piece that we did, uh, really, we went into those two countries and put Coke machines that were fully technically able to uh, video and film both sides. I, I remember it well. And... Uh, you saw humanity just unfold. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. People putting hands on one side and the other hand or tracing a heart together or a smiley face. And when they did that, of course, this was, this doesn't sound that provocative now, but back then, you know, you got a Coke as reward so that we were very much doing things of, you know, interact with a machine or a brand and get a reward felt quite novel back then. Um, when we did it and we saw it, um, that was one of those cases where I had to go to Mutar. You, you know, back to global diplomacy and understanding. And so we took it to him and he saw it and he immediately endorsed it and said, this is fantastic. This is exactly what our company should be doing. And then he said, give me a copy of that on a flash drive because I'm going to send it to Secretary Kerry, meaning John Kerry, wow. the Secretary of State at the time. Um, and that was sort of his, what, in his way saying, this is what brands and companies should be doing to try to propagate better outcomes, not, not 
not get in the way of things, not be political. It wasn't obviously any intention there, but it was really around how can we bring humanity together? How can we be a six, seven billion, you know, community together? And and Muchar believed in and does believe in that deeply. So that was sort of an a, an awesome moment. Well, there's so much uh, discussion and controversy today about should brands take a point of view and should brands enter into controversial issues like gun control. And I know you were on a panel this week mm-hmm. on that. I mean, what did you learn from that? I mean, that was taking a point of view in a controversial issue. And the brand came out, I think, looking really, really doing like they were doing the right thing. And people on both sides appreciated yes. it. So what did you learn about that decision. The thing, the thing I think I take away from it was number one, there was a proper role there for Coke. Like we weren't trying to like wedge in and create. Right. If you have machines and you have them in territory and you can outfit them with technology and you can bring, then then there was a natural role for that to be done. I think if it had been contrived or forced, it would not have come up. So I think the number one thing we always say in any of these is make sure there's a natural and evident role for your brand there. Let's not paper over things or, you know, force fit or contrive a reason for the brand to be involved. So, so that's sort of the first thing. The second one is we did in a, a ton of preparations. We worked very deeply with our teams in Pakistan and in India. We had full preparation on the ground. I mean, in many cases, we had to, there was extra security. We weren't really sure. Like, so we, I mean, we had to really, again, deeply plan and understand and involve the right party so it wasn't just you know, people in America doing something, but really making sure we had that global perspective and awareness. Um, and then I think we, you know, obviously had some measure of bravery and risk in there. There's no question. And the, the, the study I, I quote a lot right now, especially with our clients, is the global FE study that they just did with Mark Ritson. Years. Yeah. And, you know, the number one. From FEs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The number one finding was around bravery, right? That the most effective campaigns were the bravest. And there's no avoiding that. And so in moments like that, we did a lot of our homework. We were fully aware. We understood there was a proper and important role for the brand. And the final piece is you got to go. You just got to jump. You got you to know that you were prepared, as prepared as you could be, but then you got to go. And, you know, obviously our CEO was a, a, a brave leader in that moment too. Uh, but the, you, you will never have it fully buttoned up, but you can get yourself prepared. What do you love most about the ad and marketing industry? The people, the people and creativity. I mean, they, the, you know, in the toughest, toughest weeks, and there are many, um, my creative partner, Ari Weiss, always says this business is hard or harder. Uh, so we're starting from a baseline of hard. Um, but in the toughest weeks, when you see a campaign uh, and you see how a team has completely rallied around creating that, and then this incredible thing is produced yet and still to this day i mean i've been doing this for 28 years um it just thrills me it's absolutely thrilling to me a lot of people ask me what i miss by not being at png or not being in a line job you know and i say really nothing i love my life but i do if there's one thing it would be that feeling yeah when you're working with a team and you have an idea and the idea starts to come to life and it starts to change things for the better for all sorts of people that's an unbeatable feeling. Oh, such a great feeling. And, and again, again, we were we had a very big meeting last Friday, very long week last week, very big meeting on Friday, and we shared three directions uh, with a client. And I hand over heart said to them, I, you know, typically we have one that we go, oh, we like this one. Any of these three are extraordinary. I mean, and you're not always in that moment, but in and a business is harder, harder. 
but in that moment, you just think, God, any of these, I can see them come to life. They would be extraordinary. They'd be amazing. And it's just a, and it's why I, you know, I love being around creative people. I'm not that person. I can, I can spot it. I can help it. I can enable it. I can, but I don't do it. I have immense respect for the creatives in our industry who actually comes from their fingers. Uh, it's a, it's an, a wonderful gift and it's a gift to be around them. What about our industry would you like to change if that's what you love about it? It is in, in a business is harder, harder. And to the previous conversation around gratitude, I think I would say we are, are coarsening in our relationships uh, to some degree. And, and you hear a lot about the rise of procurement and um, all those sorts of things. I think just in the macro, business is hard. I get it. And, you know, and that usual interviews start with, you know, well, isn't the agency model under pressure? Well, yes, the agency model is under pressure because our clients' businesses are under pressure. We're in the service business. So uh, the beginning of our spectrum isn't our own business. It's our clients' business. And all of our clients are experiencing some measure of disruption, some measure of huge change. Um, and so that sort of spills into our business and, and we have to be agile and, and fluid with it. But I don't think we have to forget to be human and care about one another and realize that we're, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing, accomplish great goals. And I just, I, I do worry about, and I think part of that's just probably the macro of social media and sort of that uh, anonymous ability to comment. But, but there is certainly a coarsening, I think, overall in business, which, again, someone's worked 28 years. It didn't feel as ready to me a decade or so ago. And it feels very apparent now that Things can get very tense and coarse and combative and competitive. And I think the soft skill of the future is collaboration. I am not confused about that at all. And so if that's the case, then we need to know when to compete and when to collaborate. And, and I think we can get a little too harsh sometimes. I mean, I've had the beautiful benefit now. I've done about 25 to 30 uh, podcast interviews. And one definite theme, and these are remarkable people like yourself I've interviewed. The one theme is, care for people, mm -hmm. gratitude, compassion, trust. Yeah. This is the foundation yeah. for breakthrough, for creativity, for uh, teams doing remarkable things. Yeah. We can't forget that. Yeah. That's, it's so and, true. and the great CEOs we all admire, the great CMOs build that. They do. They absolutely do. They're it's, human. And they get the best work. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, because people gravitate and want to, you know, break their backs for those people because they know that they're, the work, there's going to be appreciation and that the work's going to be great. Brand purpose is obviously, um, I'm very happy to see it now, very mainstream. Everyone is trying to figure out their role in the world and how to make a bigger impact on their customers, their employees, stakeholders at large. You obviously are in the middle of that because most of your clients are on that journey. Mm -hmm. What insights do you have for our listeners about how to find a purpose, bring it to life? Mm -hmm. Uh, keep it coherent, measure it, yeah. you know, because my guess is you're doing this with dozens of clients, mm -hmm. if not more. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's very much the, uh, we were reflecting on our children earlier. I think that this younger generation, certainly millennials and Gen Z, it's going to be table stakes for them. They don't, it doesn't even compute that, that brands and companies wouldn't have a purpose beyond making money. Uh, and so I think you're seeing the, the, the tipping points begin to really happen on this, as you say, and, and really get embraced. 
the thing we talk about so much is just making sure that this isn't um, a convenient or marketing exercise, but more a deeply held and values-based exercise. And if you have to work too hard to discover it, it's probably not it. You know, it, it, the most of the cases where you can see these companies really live into their purpose, it was so evident, so obvious. It's been there all the time. They can look back in their legacies and histories and go, oh, yeah, and we did this and we did this and we did this. And so I, I think if it should feel super organic to the company, very natural, very evidenced over time, and almost effortless to be able to, you know, sort of then convert into some of the core things that you're trying to communicate and do in action, most notably. So I think that's that's one thought. The other is then, as I sort of cheated to a second ago, is around the action, right? I think Words are so easy now, and we've got many, many more places and platforms to say our words and our points of view. But again, I think this, these coming generations are very, very aware of that. They've grown up in a world of many words and much rhetoric. It, it sort of washes over them now. And so making sure your purpose is actions-based and that you're willing to hold yourself accountable and measurable to outcomes of your purpose I think is really way more important than the two sentence holding statement you put around it. Um, so I think actions, you know, real organic to the organization, those two, I think at the core are the beginning of making sure you're moving forward. I think on. we need innovation on KPIs on measurement on connecting this to the business purpose. I think so, but it's not that hard. Um, we were on the, the, the gun control panel yesterday. Uh, Richard Edelman had, he, run some research already on uh, millennial Gen Z propensity to purchase from companies that stand for gun control. And it was, it's overwhelming. And so, you know, I don't think it's going to be that difficult. Yes. If you're serious about it and you're serious about action, it, then you should, you know, what gets measured gets done, the age old adage. So you should measure it, but I don't think it will be profoundly difficult to switch those KPIs. I think it's just more of making up your mind that you will measure them. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. We've referred now in this uh, interview to your career several times, so I want to kind of helicopter up and review it for a moment. So you came out of, uh, you were Seminole, you came out of Florida State, you worked for a small agency in Atlanta, then you went to GSDNM in Austin, then you went to AT&T, then you went to Coca-Cola, and then you went to DDB. So if I add up the years, it's, it's 12 years on the client side and seven or eight on the agency side, something well, like that. There were some jobs in between that, um, okay. the, the two agencies, but they were all client side. Yeah, so okay. Mostly so client, client agency, yeah. a pretty good balance. Yes. So you have a really interesting window into both sides, but I want you to reflect, maybe you already have, are there one or two seminal experiences from your career that defined, helped shape who you are as a leader today? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think I, think I know there we have many, that. but are there one or two yeah. that you think those were really turning points? Yes. Or development um, explosions, yes. you know? I mean, we could go on to like podcast 19 if you want to get into all the seminal <laughs> experiences that have shaped me. Um, I think probably the most profound one when I was about 30, when I went to GSCNM, I left Bell South. I was working at Bell South at the time on the singular brand. And um, the agency review did not go the way, I was leading the agency review, did not go the way that I wanted it to. And I think when you're 29, 30 years old, um, you're probably a little more impetuous than you are when you're 48 or 49. Um, so I literally went home that night and said to my husband, if I quit tomorrow, would the mortgage be paid? And we didn't have any children. And he's my little MBA in finance. The next day, underneath my purse was this little spreadsheet of all our outstanding debt just against his salary. And he's like, yeah, we'd have to go out to dinner less and we'd have to cut back on this, but the house would be paid for, the cars would be paid for. So I walked in and quit. Uh, they were sort of stunned. You didn't think about it. You did it this in 12 hours, basically. Yeah, they were sort of stunned. And they, they were like, well, this is one of the biggest things that's going to go on. It's singular. This is going to be this great brand. Why, why don't you want to be associated with it? And I'm like, well, I don't want to do it with that agency that you think you, you, you guys picked it. And I don't think I can do it. Um, so you were part of the team and you had a very different point of view about who they chose. I did. I did. And so that was sort of one of those moments that I reflect on. What happened after that? was I think the industry had really thought there was smoke and fire there. Um, and so then there was all this reporting on it. You know, Wendy Clark didn't have any sort of profile back then. So suddenly I was sort of catapulted into this reporting of the person leading the pitch and resigned. I was inundated with job offers. Um, the lesson people, is. Well, and the, so the lesson was, you know, that I was seen as standing by my principal and suddenly everyone was like, we don't know you, but we want you to come talk to our company and we want to hire. It was, it was incredible that one of the agencies in the review was GSCNM, who then they themselves felt vindicated by it. Not that they had necessarily been the winner. I've always been clear about that, but, but they were one of them and just said, we believe that you've acted with such integrity that we'd like you to come. And sure enough, here we go. Um, so I, I, it's probably a seminal point for me in. I like to say to young people a lot, you know, you'll do a lot of things over your career, over your lifetime, but I'm really clear on my tombstone. No one's going to write, no, oh, she did that great Coke campaign between India and Pakistan, right? No one's going to write that. They might write, hopefully, if I live well, that I was a decent person. And that's all you, like, to me, you're living back to your point at the macro, trying to live into that. And that was the decent thing to do at the time. The process had gone wrong. And the decent thing to do was to separate from it. You know, probably today I might not be quite as impetuous and I might, you know, maybe position my argument and hope to compel different outcomes, but I was young. Um, but I've never forgotten that. And the willingness to act on your principle and your integrity and your beliefs is really important. When you were in my class in Cannes this year, you spoke so um, beautifully about passion for your work. And one reason you're back you're in, at DDB now, back in, on the advertising side, as you said, that's what I love. And I know that more than ever now. And I love my work. I love my team. I love what I do. And that was, that was a room of 50 CMOs. And when you left the room and we chatted about that, they're, they're kind of like, I'm not sure I have that for what I'm doing. So could you speak a little bit more about that, about Finding your, yes. you know, your real, real match of your, your personality, your gifts and what the world needs. Well, I think, you know, the, the way I reflect on this is I wake up every day before my alarm clock. 
strangest thing. I said it religiously every night thinking I won't. And then I always wake up. And I think part of that is I'm ready to go. Like I'm, I got things to do, you know? So I'm like, all right, tick. I got sleep out of the way. Sleep is like really a pain in the ass to me. Cause I'm like, ah, I got to sleep. It's important though. <laughs> I know it is. But if I, you know, if I could figure out a way not to need, I would just, I would constantly, I probably would work too much, but be one dimensional. But I mean, that's sort of the thing to me is like, I'm raring to go every day. I want to get back at it. I want to try a little harder. I want to see what else is out there, what we, what, what we've left unconquered. And so I think this finding something that gets you out of bed every morning is really important. And I actually feel really bad for people who have jobs that they think, and believe me, we have in a business that's harder, harder. There are certainly days that are really tough knocks and tough going and you take blows. And we, I personally have made plenty of mistakes and things that I would redo, but still overall, I got to say, I want to get at it every single, I want to try again. I mean, when you get knocked down, you brush off and you're like, all right, now I'm. How do you recover from a, a, a bad day, a bad week, a bad quarter, whatever it might be? How do you recover, keep your confidence, come back? Well, it's interesting because certainly on the agency side, that is probably my number one experience and lesson learned is resilience. I, I would say I had way less footing and skills in resilience uh, as a client because as clients, you can kind of orchestrate the outcomes you know, as you will, so that you don't really lose. Agencies, we flat out lose. <laughs> there's, there's no way of putting any kind of lipstick on that. It, we, you know, we lose. And when I first sort of got into this rhythm when I was leading North America and we'd go into a pitch and I thought we'd done really well. And then they call and say, well, we've given it to another agency. And I'd be like, that's outrageous. I, like, and I'm busy, like, you know, going, this is incredible. This is crazy. Our work was great. The strategy was sound. We had a Lots of incredible thinking. Um, and so I'm sort of off in my world. And I, you know, probably always say, you know, I was like unfriending people on Facebook. Well, we can't be friends anymore. Like, and my new business people are like, no, 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 no. You're going to call them in six weeks. You're going to check in. I'm like, no, they're dead to me. I hate them. I, I never want to see them again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and so I have, we've all gone through You've the resilience that. training mm -hmm. of Wendy Clark to be like, okay, so part of the business is learning how to lose and how to brush off. And I think the most important thing as a leader is you've got to do it for your people. They've got to see you visibly bouncing back because only when they see you, if, if I'm wounded and unfriending people, then <laughs> that's yeah. not helpful for them. And they're looking for those cues of, is everything okay? Oh yeah, she's okay. Okay. We're okay. Everything's good. And so I, I actually, in the face of loss, I try to be really, really visible and talk through it. Let's get together and talk through this. And it, you know, yeah, the stings are. How often do you me, understand but... why it was a loss? Could clients do better at that? Explaining well, yes. why they make the decision it's, and be it, honest about it? Yeah, uh, in any circumstance, in any circumstance. And I think that is perhaps one of the tougher things in these relationships, which have incredible trust a lot of times, hopefully most of the time, but I think they don't want to hurt feelings. And so we get this sort of very comfortable um, sort of. Right. Corporate, non-specific yeah. feedback yeah. where it would be so much helpful, more helpful to be like, we thought your strategy was wrong. We just don't agree with it. Or we didn't like this or this person. It's okay. You know, those, you know, that person came across as abrasive or uninspiring or whatever it is. Um, gosh, it would be helpful to know because otherwise, as is life, you keep repeating. Yeah. I think Listen to this clients. Oh, I really, I think they, after all please. that work, I think they do 
Well, and I think oh, to be in this business, I mean, back to the point of if we're winning 30% of our pitches, we're winning as much as anybody. So by definition, we lose more than we win. In this side of the business, you have to have fairly thick skin. You have to have the ability to go, well, that wasn't our, that wasn't the one that wasn't supposed to be, or that campaign wasn't right. We got to come up with something else. You know, pound for pound, we have pretty thick skin. Um, and so we can take the real feedback. It's part of the business is in a business that's harder, harder is taking mm. that kind of specificity and feedback. It would be incredibly helpful. I'm going to flip into something uh, positive, but also challenging. You lead a very high-performing organization, right? Your agency is a top agency in the world. You're perennially rated as one of the top in the gun report, which measures creativity. You were the number two network in Cannes last year. You're winning new business. You were executive of the year one or two years ago. So this is a high-functioning team that generally is winning. How do you, as a CEO, sustain that, Mm -hmm. keep that going. It's pretty easy to get a group around to turn around. It's harder to keep a group that's successful continuing to stretch. It is. What are your strategies? How do you spend your time? How much do you think about that? How deliberate are you about that? What could others learn from you? It's incredible. It's daunting, to be quite honest. Um, And I have immense respect for uh, Sarah Thompson at Droga Fives, one of my very good friends. And once I did this for a couple of years, I called her and I was like, I got to tell you, you know, we're on a sort of a resurgence and we're creating it. But as I look to, like, if we get there, how we sustain it, I don't know how you guys did that. I want to talk to you. And Widening Kennedy's been on top for a long time. But very very few organizations were able to keep that going. And so, first of all, the people who have done it. On client and agency side, to be clear. I have tremendous respect for them. I do think, you know, we've, I think you have to have an openness. Our, our business model, in a sense, is quite simple. It's, this is a much simpler P&L than the P&L I had at Coke. Um, we have people, we have rent and lease, and then we have expenses. That's it. And we don't have factories or you know, R&D or any of the you know, infrastructure yeah. or depreciating assets. We don't have any of that. Um, and so um, it then points you, it focuses the mind. Because then it points you very much to the fact that you've got to overinvest in people, right? It is our entire business is built on people. And so for that to be an outcome, we have to focus on having the right people, as, as Jim Collins would say, the right people in the right seats, um, and make sure that, that we have a culture and, and, and an agency environment where they feel that they can come to work every day and do the best work of their careers. And if we're going to sustain it, that feeling's got to sustain for five, 10, 15 years. And, you know, that sounds daunting in a way, but it also is quite focused and, and simple. Um, in North America, where we've had the greatest resurgence over the last four years, um, when I joined four years ago in January, that following can, we won zero lions, zero shortlist, zero lions. And I, I, I came from Coke. I've never been to can and not won a lion. It's like, what is this empty arm thing going on? Where, where are the things I used to holding? Um, and when Your that bag was, was empty when you went home. That created a, a real focal point was we are never, ever going to can again and not winning lines. Absolutely. And then we went on recruiting crusade, got Ari Weissen and began the journey now where the U.S., the highest performing office at can singularly for DDB last year was DDB Chicago. That's four years later. We've changed 75% of the leaders in the U.S. though in the last four years. So it is all about the people. It's about your you know, we have to be willing to make change. And those are sometimes tough decisions and can be tricky with clients if they've got a different view. But I think 
constantly in the macro going, do we have the right people on the bus? Or are they in the right seats? Are we creating a culture where creativity can thrive and the people who want to practice creativity want to come and do the best work of their career? And it's just got to be front of mind all day long, every day. I've heard you speak and seen some writing about the importance of bringing your whole self to work. And we use that word a lot, whole I self. I do. What does that mean to you? How do you build how do you build that in your company? Yeah, it's super important. And I know, you know, the, the, the one of the ways I could have answered your question earlier on what do I hope the industry changes is obviously the, the crushing reality of the lack of diversity that we have in this industry. And it cannot wait. And we have got to address this. And we've tried to do it. Many of the 75% of the leaders we change in the U.S. are women and people of color that we're bringing into our business. But it's not simply those sorts of things when we say whole self. I mean, yes, it can be your age, your gender, your sex, your sexual orientation, et cetera. Um, but whole self means that you bring whom you want to be and whom you are. The, the, the conversation I usually recount to people is at some point, someone at DDB sat across a desk from you and said, Jim, we love everything about you and we want you to come join our company and bring everything about you to work. And then something happens sometimes when you cross a threshold and suddenly you're like looking right and left and well, so-and-so's being that way and so-and-so, so maybe I should adjust my approach or maybe I should change this. And somehow we're getting less than we thought we, and you've just somehow that the, the environment has changed or something and I rail against that. So, you know, I'll use things as simple as, you know, if you if you're loud and outspoken, be loud and outspoken. We want you to be that way. Like wherever your comfort zone is, what I'm abundantly clear on is the work in my career that has been the best is when I felt the most fulfilled and the most confident that I could be my whole self. And that was, you know, when that was a mom or, you know, a wife or, you know, someone who was sort of running around crazy, you know, doing things, whatever that personality trait for me was or, or represented my life, it was super important that I was accepted for that. And that the company or the culture wasn't trying to make me something I wasn't. And so that's what I mean by whole self. Bring your whole self and all the things that are vibrant and different about you. We want every last one of those. We don't want half of those. We want all of them. It's a very powerful thought. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. You talk, you're talking about your culture and the people and so on. I want to go a little bit tactical with you here. I was on your, tried to get on your website a little while ago in preparation for this. And it's, it's under construction and you have a new visual <laughs> identity now. that's happening. We do. <laughs> and I saw the story to the visual identity, you know, and visual identity in, in yes. simple words is logo. Yes. Uh, and it looked really cool and, and it's certainly a reflection on your heritage and where you've come from. So could you walk me through a little bit about why you chose to change your visual identity? Yes. And what you're trying to do in this new online experience about your company. And when our website's going to relaunch. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> for, for Rahel. My head of comms is here and she's... Uh, she's smiling. She's Well, she's... No, it's she's not. not. <laughs> it's not her. She's been banging on the... You know, 
it's cobbler's children, right? We've got, we're always focusing on our clients. Where it's like, we just need some resource to just focus and get this done. So we will, now we've been caught out on the podcast. We will, it's going to be done. Um, the, the visual identity, the, you know, the genesis from that was we're obviously going through a little bit of a resurgence um, for, for DDB. And, you know, for all of us, I think on the leadership team, looking at the logo, it just didn't really represent uh, where we felt that we were in, in the journey. And so what I love the most about it is that we did it ourselves. So again, I think a lot of times you can go to, we could have gone inside Omnicom and gone to, you know, an interbrand or what have you. Um, but we went to our own design team in Toronto, Barry Quinn, who leads that team, who's fantastically talented. And he and his team went on a whole exploratory and we thought many, many different directions. But this one, what we like so much about it is it's actually inspired from the original logo that Doyle Dane Birnbach had by Bill Birnbach, which is two stacked Ds that made a B. And the minute you see it, you go, that's so creative. Why do we have these sort of block letters that don't? You know, and this is right in our our history and legacy. So, the minute I think we saw it, we we're like, "This is awesome!" And we saw very lots of different iterations and ways we could have done it. So that then became that we had plenty to debate, of course. Um, but you know, I think it was critically important. Number one, to you know, what I would say, just again from a lot of my experience, Coke, AT and T, I've been at these very storied legacy companies. Great brands have a foot in their past and a foot in their future, and I that we have the gift of 70 years of experience with this agency and we should never ever deny whatever generation of leadership is leading this agency to understand fully what that 70 years is. So it was very deliberate to bring back Doyle Dane Birnbach. It's really important that people know who the founders are and, and what their inspiration was behind that. It's really important that people know how to say Birnbach and not Birnbach because that's how you say his name. You know, there are things behind this that, again, if you're a student of the industry, we should all know. And and quite frankly, without being too pointed, but I was a little dismayed at what was going on in the industry that some of these incredible legacy, rich heritage brands were kind of been commoditized and smashed together. And I think it was a way for us to say, actually, we're doubling down on who we are. We We absolutely feel so strongly that at least half of our strength is in our legacy and half in what we'll do in the future. And so I think probably one of the most lovely moments uh, was when Keith Reinhardt saw it because he is our, our godfather uh, yet and He still. was head of the agency for how many years? He was, uh, General, roughly. well, I mean, all of, um, all of his career for, yeah. the, for the most part. Um, but yeah, I think in the actual CEO role, um, you know, well over a decade. Yeah. And he still comes to the office. Um, he's still an, an incredible inspiration to all of us. He's, uh, he's 84. Um, he doesn't mind me saying that because he was the one, his birthday's the day after mine. And this year I turned 48 and he turned 84. So we're the inflection of each other that. one day apart. So there you go. Um, but, uh, he, when he saw it, he's like, this is, this is great. But I always say that, you know, leadership is a privilege and a pressure, right? And, and it is such a privilege to come into this role after someone like Keith Reinhardt had done it before and Bill Birnbach before that and Bob Scarpelli and other, these, this legacy of rich heritage. There's a pressure in that, right? You don't want to be like, who is that one woman who came in and ran the agency for a few years? She really left this place. Does that, like, I don't it's not going to happen, Wendy. That person. So in those moments where Keith's eyes light up and he is doing it right, you know, and I just feel that kind of like, okay, 
We're doing it right. We're doing it right. I, I want to live into his legacy so much. What do you really love about the new Breaking Kroger campaign? What I love about the new campaign we're working on with Kroger is that it's, it's truly breakthrough. Uh, it will be breakthrough for the category. It will be breakthrough, I think, for consumers. It's, it's really anchored in what Kroger do and are. So obviously they are a grocer and they have fantastic fresh foods, the freshest foods. And uh, they have a great value at the same time. So all the things that we know consumers want, but it's delivered in a way that is charming, that is engaging, and therefore it will break through. And, you know, our, our belief is around emotional advantage. Like when we can make people feel something, they will remember that brand. And this truly sits right at the nexus of you will feel something when you watch the Kroger campaign. There will be a, an abundance of emotions that you feel. And therefore, their message of fresh food and great value will come through right behind and wrap in with that emotion. And, and that's great advertising. Wendy, you and your team at DDB use animation in the Kroger campaign. So why did you choose animation and what do you love about it? So the new Kroger campaign uses animation, as you say, and um, it, it, is, it is part of the breakthrough of the campaign. There's no animation in the category. Um, it's a way for us to show um, this, these emotions of these people, if you think about, you know, the power of Disney or uh, Pixar or any of the animated uh, filmmakers out there, we can all live into those characters um, and find ourselves in those characters. And I think animation can be sort of a democratizer in that sense. And Kroger is absolutely a democratizer in the category. There's a lovely parallel between this animated environment community, all the members of it, and you'll see they're delightful and different shapes and sizes and have different kind of hair and colors and styles. That's all of us, and we can live into that. And it's just a wonderful gift to be able to represent the values and culture of Kroger, which is, is this delightful and kind company through these characters that we can all associate with. So we're, we're very excited about the potential here. I want to end this with some insights about you as a person and as a leader. So it's going to be a bit of a lightning round, oh, lightning to, round. to end I our love beautiful those, discussion That's why together. I came. Lightning round. So, <laughs> <laughs> the questions are so easy said, too. Are you ready? A lightning round. So, how do you stay fresh and creative? Um, I think be curious. I think the number one trait I look for in myself and our people is curiosity. I, I think if the minute you start to think you've got it all cracked, you don't, uh, and you're you're probably not learning. So. Massive, massive curiosity, read things, touch things, ask questions. So curiosity. Okay, next one. What do you read or listen to or watch regularly to stay in touch? Um, I think my main, my main source of news is Twitter uh, because it's rapid fire and I can get what I want. My main source of broader inspiration is TED.com. Uh, so I'll listen to TED uh, talks while I'm on the elliptical machine. Um, I think those are probably my two sort of go-tos. I, I find myself in rabbit holes from Twitter. So there's a number, you know, know wherever you, you end up going. Yeah. What do you mean? But it is, it is a great, I think you can curate yourself into a place where you've got such interesting things in your feed that mm -hmm. it fills your brain. Yeah. Is there a book that's engaged you recently? Yeah. I read the, um, culture code. Well, the couple culture code by Daniel Kong, um, I think is fantastic. And, uh, sort of, read that and sent every the highlights mm -hmm. to the team the other one that i think is really great is the checklist manifesto which i've been talking about by a while, for a while by atul gawande um i just think that's 
fascinating read if you Yeah, I do. I know it. Yeah. yeah. And I do think it's sort of one of those sort of interesting things of we are so overwhelmed that we're actually forgetting the basics. Right? And that's really instructive as you're leading a company and thinking about it. So those are the two. Yeah, my brother turned me on to him, who was a doctor. Yeah. And I ended up meeting him. He's, a, he's yeah. an amazing human being. Your special gift as a leader. I know it's a hard question for you because I, you're kind of humble, yeah. but what do you hear from your people about your special gift? Um, I hope it's empathy. Um, I, I do try to, um, to empathize. And I think that... Um, Empathy a lot of times is what's missing in leaders that I've worked for. I just sort of, you know, I think at times you wish that people would empathize with your point of view. And I think if you can lead with empathy, people then go, oh, well, she seeks to understand me and know me a little bit better. So I, I hope it's that. You were inducted into the 2019 Marketing Hall of Fame. Oh, so what was your nicest memory of that evening? My children. So um, I had my children do the induction. We got to pick who we got. And so I asked the organizers if my children could do it. And they said, well, we've never had anyone's children do it before. Um, and so cut to the night and they wouldn't, my husband tried to help. I, I certainly didn't try to interfere, and, but they wouldn't let my husband. So we had no idea what they were going to say. And they had organized themselves around the way I, they see on my, the way I define myself um, is mom marketer, relentless optimist is on my social profiles. And so one did mom, one did marketer, and one did relentless optimist. And it was just, I mean, it just bought my, it was, it was very, very magical for me. And they were superstars. They were funny and they were well-timed and it was awesome. So you asked them to do that. I did. so sweet. And they took it from there. Yeah, I did. It was awesome. So you do family trips to build houses for homes of hope. We do. Why do you do that? Um, we got involved, we've done, we're about to go two weeks from now, we'll build our 11th and 12th house. And we got involved because my husband's company was involved and he sort of went on a build with his company and he said, this is great. You got to do it. And then I went and then we've gone with his family and our family. And the, the thing that the reason that we started to do it with our children was, you know, my children have incredible privilege. Uh, they go to private school. Uh, they don't really want for much. And I don't want to raise children who don't understand the privilege they have. I, you know, I want them to appreciate it and I want them to understand that that is extraordinarily unusual. That the, you know, 99% of the world, 99.9% of the world doesn't live with the privilege that they live with. And so that was a way for us to, um, obviously, to give back, we wanted to, but to help our children understand the incredible responsibility they have with that privilege is to constantly give back, is to constantly use, you know, to those who much is given, much is expected. And to live into that is really, really important to us. And they, so my children all speak Spanish. They go to an international school. So we, all, we go to Spanish-speaking countries. And what they do on these builds is incredible. They build community and trust and bonds with the children and the family. They communicate for, for us and translate a lot. And they're the ones who look forward to it every year now. They can't wait. It's not, now it's just picking what country we go to. Like, where are you um, going next? What we're going to Dominican Republic, uh, where we've been before. We've built in Panama, Mexico, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. um, we love it. I'm a huge champion of it. The most powerful thing I have ever, ever done in my life, and sorry, wow. it chokes me up, is hand a front door key to someone who's never had one. It is it is life shaping. It's life changing. And 
a couple of builds ago, the woman, we, we will, you know, we say our wishes or our prayers for the person as, as after we've built it. And they, they build it with us and the, the key goes around, you hold the key and then at the end the key goes to the owner. And she took the key and she put it in the keyhole, but she didn't know to turn it. I mean, she's not, they, these people live in, you know, metal structures or tarped structures and they've never had a front door key or, or a front door. And so it is, and it's life-changing for them. And it is, I think it's the greatest gift and the, you know, huge responsibility. We, we have to do this. Wendy, uh, this is kind of a mundane question after that, but uh, it's the last one. Who else? I mean, you have such a window into people. Who else should we have on the CMO podcast? Mandy wanted you on the podcast. No, I did nice. too. So we followed nice. up on that. Mandy from Kroger. Who would you like to see on the CMO podcast? Oh, there's so many amazing people out there. Um, I just had dinner last week with a really core, great crew of, of women that I adore. Um, Kim Kelleher is going in as the a new president of advertising sales at AMC, and she's a dear, dear friend of mine. And so we just got together and had a moment. But uh, she's fantastic. I think what Meredith Levian is doing at the Times is undeniably fantastic, and, and she's great. Um, Erica Nardini was there from Barstools. You know, she's incredible. And then Dylan McGee, who's running Makers. I mean, that was the five of us were at dinner, and we could have we could have eaten for nineteen hours and not been done. Um, so I know three of them, so they're all good ideas. Thank you, Wendy. Thank this you. This was splendid. It was. Thank you for asking. That was my conversation with Wendy Clark. What was really, really special about this one was when she spoke about being admitted into the Marketing Hall of Fame, and who introduced her into the Hall of Fame? Her three children. And she spoke about that with great pride and beautiful love. When I listened to Wendy describe that experience, I thought, if I ever get admitted to another Hall of Fame, I want my kids to introduce me. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.